we're really encouraging them today. And also, I just wanted to, before I go on with the communion, say to all those of yourselves who've been praying for my brother, who's had his cancer recently. Um, he's had a very good and successful operation. Um, they've done a very good job removing what they removed. So, um, the positive is, the positive is that he is clear of it, but he's in severe pain. Um, it's one of those things that uh, I personally hope I never experience. But, uh, please pray for his speedy recovery. He can just continue to pray for him. And also, for some of you guys have met him, he's been around a few times with us. That uh, he gets the, the label because when you get these things happen to you, it's time to sort of smell the problem. But anyway, anyway, um, let's talk about the communion. And um, the communion is possibly the most important part of the service when you think about it because it grows you. It's, uh, it helps you to uh, to understand what didn't need to happen. You can say that Jesus died on the cross. He didn't have to. Uh, he chose to do it because he loved us and he could see essentially that uh, we were hopeless without any sort of hope or future. And I told that not only does he give us a hope in the future, but he also gives us salvation, which is phenomenal. Now, two weeks ago, I had a message saying, Edmondson, you're doing communion. And I thought, all right, that's it. And I thought, what can I talk about? Now, I'm one of the first Catholic churches in January 1993. Uh, a lot of you guys are in the world. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And um, I remember thinking to myself when I sat in the world certified, I thought, what? I'm not a church. You're joking. But I was, I was impacted. I was impacted. And. Uh, it took me four months to become a Christian. Which is quite shameful, really, because what it shows is the hardness of the heart for my community to God. And I really had to question why I was talking in the first place, but then sort of clicked. But anyway, two weeks ago, I thought, how many communions have I heard in 24 years? And I'll calculate, I listened to about 1,200 communions, <laughs> considering that first Sunday day. And all those communities, none of them are the same as each other, they're all So what essentially that means is everybody has an impact on Jesus. It's just reality. So, being here today, I thought, well, what can I talk about? It's all about Jesus, which is simple as that. I know when I first came here uh, 24 years ago, shameful to say, but it's so true, 24 years ago, um, what Jesus does to your heart is if he, he reaches out to you and you don't make a decision. Because for four months, 24 years ago, I was quite reluctant to become a Christian. I was looking at an I was saying he's really good. Yeah, he's like, you know, all these very positive, uh, personal people. I don't like this. And uh, what happens is Jesus confronts you as a person, as an individual. And you're either man or woman to take the look to see the devil. And you have to look at who you are and come to a conclusion. If you don't see your sin before Christ, you have a problem. Now, the problem with sin is it's your personality. It's who you are. So, if, if I'm a great sports person, I'm good at football, or table tennis, or whatever it is, 
you do your research despite our, our um, ingratitude towards you. We are very, very grateful, Father, for allowing us to do such a greasy death uh, in that way, Father. We thank this time in Jesus' name.
decided to jump back into the Gospel of Luke together. You can turn to Luke chapter 6. We had a great time this morning prayer. Uh, over the last month at the church. And we're going to be going through the Gospel of Luke uh, the rest of the year, but we're going to jump off on different topics for a month. Just want to thank you for our learners, Christians, and prayers for those topics that we dove off into uh, this last month. So Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, the title of the sermon this afternoon is The Lord of Sabbath. Well, thank you, Eric, uh, for reminding us. I thought it was great about how much Jesus has saved us from. We never talk about that enough, but we never reflect on that enough. And I appreciate the humility that he displays there for us. Thank you, Eric. Luke chapter 6, verse 1. Let's read the text together. Picking up uh, Jesus in Galilee, he's really starting up his public ministry and, and momentum to build. And as Jesus knows the momentum of his ministry, the disciples start to follow him more and more. Uh, the religious opposition starts to set in more and more as well. In Luke chapter 6, verse 1, it says, One Sabbath Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, Why are you doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath? Verse 3, Jesus answered them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and taking the concentrated bread and ate what was lawful only for the priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, verse 5, The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Verse 6, On another Sabbath he went to the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. Pharisees and teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But in verse 8, Jesus knew what they were thinking. Instead of the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? He looked around at them all, and then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. So this is an account of two different Sabbath days and two major conflicts uh, that Jesus has uh, between himself and his disciples and the religious establishment, particularly the Pharisees and teachers of the law. So let's look at the can here, just three quick points uh, from this, the text here this afternoon. The first point is crossing fences. Crossing fences. Here, you know, the first Sabbath that uh, uh, Luke records here in these two instances, Jesus uh, in Luke 6, uh, verses 1 through 5. Uh, says that he and his disciples are, are in, the, in the fields. They're actually doing what the Old Testament law said you were allowed to do. You were allowed to walk through the field. And you could pick, uh, you know, grains as you walk through your hands and eat, and eat those things. And it was considered a, a benevolent thing that a farmer would do for the Jewish community. And as Jesus and his disciples are doing that, they're, they're being watched. You know, that's pretty exciting. They're being watched even on your lunch break here. And, uh, so they're being watched because it's on the Sabbath day that they are doing this, right? And this kind of comes into this idea of the Old Testament law that was very clear from the Pentateuch and, and, and the prophets, which we call the Old Testament today, uh, versus the oral law that the Pharisees and teachers of the law in Jesus' day also enforced in addition to the law. Uh, and actually, uh, it's talking about Sabbath day and no work should be done. In Exodus 20, verses 8 through 10, it makes it very clear that, that no 
the Sabbath. And so Exodus 20, verses 8 and 10, uh, it's quite clear that the, the dilemma and the debate uh, that was going on even in Jesus' day was what did it mean to work? And so the, the Pharisees and teachers of the law had established um, through their own traditions 39 prohibited activities that they considered work on the Sabbath day. And you can see these listed here. Uh, it's actually kind of what's called the Mishnah, uh, which is the, 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 the record of all, all of the, the Pharisees and teachers of the law's uh, oral traditions that they were enforcing upon uh, the Jews uh, in Jesus' day. Uh, and so the Mishnah uh, contains those, those specific teachings, and it was four main categories, and they're broken down here. On the left is baking, then, the, then clothes making, then leather work, uh, and finally building. And so Jesus and his disciples, they broke in five, five of these 39 old traditions in the first column there. Uh, they are reaping, buying sheep, threshing, and, and whittling, and selecting. And so they're they're doing all things that are required to bring and put it into your mouth. So they've broken five of those 39 oral traditions. Again, keep in mind there's nothing in the Old Testament law that said that this was considered work. This is an interpretation of the Old Testament law. One of the Pharisees, of course, were very strict in enforcing it. And Jesus' response, of course, uh, to these criticisms, uh, in Luke 6, uh, verses 3 through 5, what does he say? He says, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and taking the consecrated bread. He ate what is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So Jesus says, Have you never read? Of course they read the account that you described, which is found in 1 Samuel 21. Jesus is on the run from, from Saul, who's trying to take his life. He has no food for him as a man on the run, so he walks to the temple and he takes the bread that only the priests, according to the law, were allowed to eat. And so Jesus takes a biblical precedent, and he says, based on this biblical precedent, I don't understand regard what you think religiously should be a precedent in my life. And then he quotes uh, something then in verse 5, which is similar to what the rabbis would say in his day. The rabbis would say, the Sabbath is made for you, not you for the Sabbath. So how much more, you know, is that the Sabbath meant to benefit the Son of Man and His disciples who, who, who are there with the Lord as He calls Himself of the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees, um, you know, they were so they thought the masters of the law. They had all these moral traditions that they followed to make sure they never broke the law. So they saw themselves as the most spiritual. And here comes along Jesus as He does. He, he doesn't go with the patterns of man. He doesn't go with the patterns of religion. He does what he knows God wants him to do. And he even uses God's word to combat and challenge these oral traditions that the Pharisees were trying to, trying to bring down upon Jesus at this time. And in the beginning, uh, as religious people, the Pharisees and teachers of the law, I'm sure they probably had the right heart with these oral traditions. They didn't want to break God's law. There's nothing wrong with that kind of heart, right? But perhaps they started to develop the wrong methods in doing the right thing in your heart. And we as religious people, we can, we can relate to this. We don't want to disobey God, so we, we start, you know, creating methods, and we start creating oral traditions. What I'm calling here fences, we put up fences, boundaries for ourselves and one another to make sure that we, too, are not sinning. So we can understand this struggle, I think, um, as religious people uh, to some degree. But in Jesus' day, the oral traditions were a law within the law. And so in Jesus' day, they had the wrong heart and the wrong methods. And it's going from bad to worse. 
And so as I said here, all religious people put up some kinds of fences. You know, God to some degree wants us to put up fences, spiritually speaking. For example, in Proverbs 4, verse 23, he says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Keep your mouth free of perversity. Keep corrupt talk far from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Get a careful thought to the path of your feet. And be steadfast in all your ways. Do not turn to the right or the left. Keep your foot from evil. Proverbs 4, verses 23 to 27. So as Christians, according to God's word, we, we should have some spiritual boundaries. We should have some fences, spiritually speaking, to make sure of all else. We guard our hearts. That we don't enable practices in our own lives and in our own church that cause us to stumble in sin. But the problem quickly, once you start to do that, right, and it's true in Christianity, is that at some point we start to cling to the fence more than we cling to God. At some point we even mistake that very fence that's just based on us and our thinking for God Himself. And we start turning into just like the Pharisees and teaching the law, we start we start enforcing that no one crosses that fence. And we even apply that it's sinful and defying God to cross that fence. And that's an extreme example of that. So, so we have to think about this, I think. It's a good thing to consider. And on the other hand, I think we also have to say, in light of this, that God is the fence at times for sure. When His scripture is clear, there's no time in that fence. <coughs> When the word is clear, we don't need to try to find that. We just need to accept that that's a good boundary that God's given us in our lives. You know, God calls us to love Him above all things. We don't find that fence, no way. He calls us to love each other above, above all else. You know, with one another, we're going to love each other. We don't find that fence. He calls us to be holy. He calls us to make disciples. Those, those are wonderful and beautiful fences. God for me is placed around us, and we never try to cross those in the name of spiritual freedom. But here the Pharisees, God is right there, healing the lame, and they can't only see the fence that was crossed. And they completely missed the point of God's law altogether. And Jesus offers a simple solution to approaching fences we place in our lives. He says, evaluate them in light of God's word. Evaluate them in light of the precedence that God's word lays forth as he quotes person in 21 to them in light of this world tradition. And I think in the church there are many examples of this. Um, I think in the area of dating, you know, pursuing a husband or a wife, uh, we over the years have had many practices in our family and churches that are, that are very healthy. They're good fences. For example, the biblical principle that should shine when it comes to dating and pursuing a husband or wife is that of purity. That we're absolutely pure. Um, and, and of course, uh, you know, Talks about all kinds of stuff in our heart to even uh, physical affection and things like that. Uh, and I know for me, I didn't grow up going to church quite the opposite. And uh, for me, when I first became a Christian, having those practices, those fences out there in that area for me, it was very good. It was very helpful. Uh, it helped me feel safe, uh, even with other sisters and vice versa. And I thought this is this is a wonderful thing. But over time, I realized that I had that I had that biblical conviction about uh, about the principles behind those boundaries. That I myself accepted, and that other people had encouraged me to think about uh, within the church. You know, the principles matter far more than the practicals. And I, I want to encourage ourselves in this church here to think about what are your godly principles that you have about dating, and then, and then develop, you know, practicals 
from the scriptures. We had a David Herschel a while back, and as you see, all the singles of the church, I challenge you to have your own convictions about those, those, those practices based on biblical principles. But I think that's just one example of many. One example of many things that in the church that we need to always consider our offenses and why we have them. You know, as a church, we are free in Christ, but my spiritual freedom should not cause others to stumble. And if we care about create a culture in the church, uh, you know, that, that causes people to stumble, stumble with offenses that I do put up or I want to cross in my life. And as every Christian uh, in the church has that obligation uh, as well. Sorry, sorry, there's most of you remote. Um, Romans 14 talks about this in verse 13. Let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. Let us therefore make every effort, it goes on in verse 19, to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. And I think this would be so challenging this guy's on you. Know, amen, that's your offense. But that's not ours. So here's a biblical precedent for them. And so I'm sure we're stumbling. Uh, and, and these are our only times when we really think about that collectively. And even when we think about that personally, you know, our convictions as a church may not be where, where you need to be spiritually, or vice versa. Those are great opportunities to open our Bibles together and have great discussions about where we need to draw our lines to, to work out all of our individual salvation with fear and trembling. So what offenses have we put up all together and individually as Christians? And are they helping us obey God and His Word or hindering that process. This first point here, hopefully, allows us to think about crossing fences. Uh, the second thing here is righteous anger. We see in here crossing fences. We also see this idea, uh, which is a controversial one, of righteous anger. Uh, anger is an interesting thing. I'm going to watch a video of one of my, my favorite uh, sitcoms called The Office, the American version, uh, where, where two co workers, Jim, who's the prankster, plays a prank on Andy. Who's this co-worker who's kind of gotten on his nerves? He has this really annoying ringtone uh, that has a barbershop quartet that he participated in on his ringtone, Andy. So, Jim has a friend on him. We're going to watch it here uh, at this stop.
You know what? Maybe you're in the ceiling. You know what? Maybe you're in the ceiling. Okay. Well, let's see if I'm still sitting in my desk and be quiet. Sorry, I know it's you with my friendship. Ephesians 4.26 says, In your anger, do not sin. So it's possible to be angry 
and not sin. The context of that is relational. Uh, if we love each other, we will sometimes be angry uh, about one another's sins. And then some of you guys not sinful at all. James 4.17 says, Anyone who knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it sins. Uh, and sometimes we should be righteously angry about our sin or other people's sins or our lack of doing the right thing. And Jesus does that right here. He's angry at these men uh, for being more concerned about trapping him than healing a man who needed healing on the Sabbath day. And so no anger, no indignation regarding sin is not being like Jesus. And so at some point, that is sin for us, I believe, based on the Bible clearly shows. Uh, of course, the contrast to that one is more obvious to see is this is being angry is sinning uh, once we are angry. Um, that's the more obvious point of Andy in the video clip, of course, displayed that quite well as he punched his hand through the wall. Uh, Galatians 5 20 talks about uh, the sins uh, of fits of rage. It's this idea of out of control anger. Uh, Ephesians 4 26, we are ready in your anger, do not sin. At some point, our anger uh, becomes sinful. Uh, it's quite interesting here in the middle column, uh, there's two main Greek words for anger in the New Testament. Thymos is the top one, uh, and Orge is the bottom one. Thymos is, is, is translated often as fury, wrath, rage, and intense desire. It's often equated to you're going toward that sinful stage. Whereas the other one is, is, is quite interesting, it's Orge. And Orge is settled indignation. Uh, and so Orge is actually the word that uh, Mark's Gospel, Mark 3, verse 5, where it says Jesus looked at that anger. It's actually the Greek where there's Orge. So it was settled indignation that Jesus had, so therefore he was not sinning, even according to the use of different Greek words. Uh, and so, so, so righteous anger or settled indignation uh, is what we ought to, ought, ought to be looking for when we do feel anger. But oftentimes we're going to cross that line. Uh, if we're not careful, and we do uh, sin sometimes in our anger. And what's interesting is the Pharisees, they actually display this. They display this. Uh, in in uh, Luke 6, verse 11, uh, it says that they're furious. And it's actually the Greek word, annoying, where we get the, the modern word, annoying, right? So, and so they're furious, it says, which is a very, very similar word in the Greek to, to the other word, uh, thymus, that has to do with rage and wrath and, and, and simple, the simple type of anger. So we see this very contrast here with Jesus, who has the who has the uh, the orgate, the son of indignation, which I, I'm calling your righteous anger after the second point, uh, and and the Pharisees who are just, they're just filled with fury, they're just sinning in their anger. And so Jesus and them are this this stark stark contrast here in this particular this particular display. And if you go from the Old Testament to the New Testament, we see God's righteous anger over and over the prophets and the psalmists. They say, God is slow to anger, abounding in love. That, that idea of settled, settled indignation. A good parent, as a parent, and parents, you know, when we have settled indignation toward our children's misbehavior and, and bad deeds, and we, and we, we have indignation, but we don't harm them in an indignation, but rather pull them. And that's, of course, a picture of God. Jesus, Jesus here, in contrast to the Pharisees, great chief, He's the perfect example, as he always is, right? He's the, he's the golden ox of anger. You know, not, not too little, not too much, but just right. Just right. And that's, and that's only as Christians the target that we should have. Because culture and experiences and backgrounds, you know, we can be around some very simple anger growing up. And so we can often say no anger is the only solution to anger. But I would say that that's actually not a view that's biblical. Although I do think you have to be very careful. With your anger. And then, of course, we can go the other way, and, and, and we can think that anger is the solution to everything. 
measured view of anger. I think that is the question. Uh, and that's being like Jesus. That's being like Jesus. And that, and that anger, it's a very powerful thing that's done right. Because that anger here, it healed a man. It actually healed a man. Jesus didn't have that kind of communication. This man would not have been healed. And so we have to realize that if we are like Jesus, we have that thymus, that son of innovation, that righteous anger, we and others can be healed from the consequences of our sin. So do we have righteous anger about our own sin and others? And will we be like Jesus and use some of the indignation uh, to do the right things in our lives? And so, you know, we've learned here from the Lord of the Sabbath, crossing fences, we've learned about righteous anger, and finally here, we can learn about faith over fear. Faith over fear. You know, Jesus, he displays and reminds us here of the point of the Sabbath, to restore and heal humans. So that's just what he does here with this man, uh, in chapter 6. Uh, it's interesting that he heals the man, here in the text, uh, in Luke 6, in verse 8. It says, he knew these, these critics' hearts, and he said to the man, the short man, get up and stand in front of everyone. So it says the man got up and stood there. Again, in verse 10, he looked around at all that after he gave him a, a challenging statement and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so, it says, and his hand was completely restored. You know, this man, uh, uh, this man before, and, and as he is healed by Jesus, is a great illustration, a great illustration of faith over fear. You know, here in verse 8, you know, his faith is demonstrated in his courage. Jesus, he's being watched. He's being opposed by the guys who run the synagogue. They, they run the whole religious assessment at the time. And so Jesus obeys this, this man obeys Jesus' direct order, and in doing that, he is defying the religious assessment in his day. It's a great courage for this man to stand up uh, and obey Jesus at this particular point. And he does exactly just that. He doesn't know. He doesn't know what's about to happen. He has no idea. He just, he, he just decides to be courageous. And have faith in Jesus. You know, he feared God far more than man. So he was courageous in his faith. The second thing here about his faith in verse 10 is that his faith is demonstrated in his obedience. He was healed in and during the act of obeying. Jesus says, stretch out your hand. Once he stretched out his right hand, it says, then he was healed. Many of Jesus' miracles, the, the, the obedience coincides with the, with the miracle and with the healing. It reminds us, of course, of uh, James chapter 2, verses 14 and 17. Because we can talk a lot about belief, but what does belief look like? And this man is a great example of that. It has courage. It's obedient. And that's what James talks about in James 2, 14 and 17. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith, he says, even say to them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep all the whole fat, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So it's a great illustration of this man's uh, life, of what, of what real faith looks like, and how faith is always overcoming fear. Faith is always and often overcoming fear. Because in, in many ways, I believe faith and fear are opposites. They're very much opposites. And we, I think, like this man, can spiritually have shrivel hands as we give into fear and doubt and sin. As we give into fear, doubt, and sin, it shrivels our spiritual lives. And his hand represents spiritually how we can look uh, in this passage uh, when we live by fear rather than by faith. 
But the encouraging thing here is by and through faith in Jesus, and, and not by our spiritual hands, but, but by our faith in Jesus' spiritual hands, as he died into those things on the cross, we can well overcome many things. By faith, not fear, the healing spiritually can come for us all. And I've really encouraged them to be honest. Uh, some of the signs that man, in our church of people not getting into fear and being faithful. Uh, a few weeks back, uh, Easter uh, week, we, we, we met uh, at Cam Hill Park. For, we went outside to share our faith, pray together. It was freezing cold, but what was it good? Lots of disciples showed up at Cam Hill Park that night. They were bold, they were joyful, and they shared their faith and talked about Jesus. And I thought, that, that, that's not getting into, into, into fear, and that's getting into faith. And I was encouraged by that. If you were there, hopefully you felt the same. Uh, you know, we decided to try all this uh, Wednesday night good week instead of Friday night. I know it sounds convenient. Uh, we talked about this a lot to me on Wednesdays. It's on Friday for people. Uh, but, but it was so encouraging to see so many people last Wednesday who maybe despite the hesitations and the fears showed up anyway. Uh, you know, as I wrote up, Connor wrote up, uh, after taking public transport by herself and her two children, and she rolls on with a smile on her face, and I thought, that's faith right there. I was so impacted by Connor. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, taking her two kids on her own on public transport. That, that, that's faith, not fear. I was inspired by Carter. She was a great example of that uh, to me last Wednesday. Uh, and then this last Monday, you know, Alina got baptized in our garden. And that was so encouraging. I think that's the 16 baptized in this church in the last year or so. What a great example our team disciples are.